I'm going to, um, last time I put this in my pocket so that as I left the podium, you could still hear me. And so that's what I'm going to do again. It turned out pretty well, I think. Um, okay, so I uh, apologize again for uh, having uh, some sickness come, on, come upon me at the last minute. Um, but this, uh, this week, so we're going to continue talking about the hypostatic union. So you could kind of think about this as the hypostatic union part two. Um, I am, uh, as I was, uh, again, as I wrote this last week and brushed up on it a little this week, it's hopefully a little bit shorter, but as I've tried to make the lessons a little more shorter, they've actually gotten longer uh, for obvious reasons. I think that's a good thing, but the purpose of that is, you know, new concepts and things that I want, I want to save till next week. And the other is hopefully, like, there'll be some, there will no doubt be questions. Um, so I'm hoping that I can provide some time at the end for that. So, um, so we're just going to, I guess, dive right in. So, again, a little preface before we get into our text. And if you want to go ahead and turn to the text, it's going to deal with Philippians chapter 2. Um, we're going to read verses 5 through 11. I'm actually going to be reading from the King James Version because I like the King James Version on this. Um, but, of course, any translation will do. Um, well, not any, but most translations will do. Um, but uh, before we embark on this, I do want to just kind of give a reminder that the purpose of all this is not to answer every question that we have about this. It's to ultimately teach us how to talk properly about it. And from that, uh, bow our knee or invoke reverence uh, for, our, for our Lord or to invoke a greater love for him. So what I'm trying to kind of sneakily say is that I'm probably going to raise more questions than, than I give you answers, so forgive me for that, um, but that's just the nature of, of how this goes. There's a mystery here that we can't comprehend, but we'll try to do our best. And also, we need to remember, uh, as in earlier lessons, that we, whatever we say about Christ, and it bears repeating, we must say with respect to what we have already said of God, okay? So we don't need, we can't contradict ourselves and what we've already said of God, lest we also contradict, I think, the biblical witness, our confession of faith, and our reasoning about the Bible as well. So um, keep that in mind. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go. So hope you all turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll read verses 5 through 11, and then ask the Lord to bless our time. This is the word of God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Oh, great God, we, as we 
dive into some of this text and as we contemplate the great mystery that is your incarnation, Lord, help us to be reverent and help us to be respectful of what we say about you. And God, I pray above all, Lord, that we would be edified, Lord, that it would invoke reverence, that it would invoke worship, that we have such a great God as this. And God, I pray that, again, as we come to some of the finer theological points, Lord, that you would keep Keep me from error, Lord, that you, would, that you would keep me humble. And, Lord, that the hearers um, of, such, of such things would, would also um, be illuminated by your Spirit and uh, come to an understanding of the things that are drawn out of the biblical text. And Lord, help us and prepare us for worship. Edify us and come and commune with us. In your name, amen. Okay, so let's, uh, real quickly, I did want to look at the text kind of a little bit before we go into some of the, um, some of the technical stuff. Um, and just as a disclaimer, I'm really kind of paraphrasing or at times quoting verbatim like some commentaries, like John Gill mostly. Okay, so I don't want you to think that, um, that I'm plagiarizing here, these are my own words, but uh, just that other men have said this better than I have. Um, so if you look at verse 6, if you look at verse 6 and 7, which are kind of the, 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 the crux of what we're going to be addressing today. So I said we were talking about the hypostatic union, and we've already said in previous lessons that the hypostatic union is or what it is. So today I want to kind of get into how that kind of works insofar as we can say. Okay, so... Last week we said that it is. Today we're saying how that sort of happens and so far as we can say. So if we look at verse 6, we, what I see first is the who but being in the form. So let's look at the word form. The form, the word form is found only in this passage in the New Testament except for in Mark 16, um, but used only in this way in the New Testament as it's the only other use altogether. Um, the, the purpose of pointing that out, and you can consult any lexicon or dictionary uh, for the Greek text on this. Um, in this context, there can be no doubt that in the classical Greek, it describes the actual specific character, which, which kind of like you know, material substances, material things, um, makes each being what it is. Okay, And so that's important to grasp here. It makes each being what it is. So... Paul uses the word form here in this passage uh, to describe Christ, or the pre-incarnate Lord here, being in the form of God. Okay, It describes our Lord's essential and therefore eternal being in the true nature of God. Okay, So do we have that so far? I'd just like people to be with me. Okay, So... That's the Greek word. I went ahead and wrote it up there. I just wanted to, you know, um, demonstrate that I can write some Greek, even though I don't always know what it means. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, uh, so it describes our Lord's essential and therefore eternal being in the nature of the true God, while the taking on the form of a servant similarly, so on the other hand, refers to his assumption of the true nature of man. So that word is, is used there as well um, in this text. So therefore, what we should conclude from this, this form, this word form is to be understood as, 
And this is, I'm quoting Gill here. As whatever is in God is God. He is nothing but nature and essence. He is the Jehovah. He is I am. Okay? Okay, great. In other words, taking the entire biblical witness into account here, you know, so not isolating the text, taking the entire biblical witness into account here, the who, the who being in the form of God, the who is Christ, the being is the essential existence he holds, okay, and in the form of describes his, I'll give you a guess, we've talked about it, describes his nature, his nature, describes his nature, um, or what he is, okay, so we said nature was what. Not only that, the meaning of such, I think, is confirmed by the rest of the text where he says, he thought it not robbery. He thought it not robbery. Well, what does that mean, to be equal with God? That is, there is nothing to be said in the negative of Christ, nothing blasphemous, nothing erroneous, and certainly nothing heretical, to say that Christ is totally and completely divine as the Father is divine. Okay? Without the distinction of the natures, of course. Uh, but just speaking to his divinity. So if we move on to verse 7, so if we're looking at verse 7, when we talk about the emptying, when we talk about the kanoo over there, the emptying, uh, we, it should indicate that, and I'm quoting Gilligan here, not that the fullness of grace which was laid upon him from everlasting was emptied, for, this, for with this he appeared when he was made flesh and dwelt among men. So he retains that. Okay. Nor of the perfections of his divine nature. So no attributes go away. Right? Which were not in the least diminished by his assumption of a human nature, for all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. Colossians two nine. Though he took that which was not he had not before, he lost nothing of what he had. The glory of his divine nature was covered and out of sight. That's just a short way to say the emptying is the taking on the form of a servant. Okay? Does anybody have any questions about that? How it looks like you, you want to say something? Okay, okay. Um, so instead, he assumed something he did not have before. He took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. He assumed a human nature. He assumed and took on something created and was made like us with our infirmities yet without sin. Okay? So addition, not subtraction. Uh, we're going to get to that. Yeah, so definitely not subtraction. Um, but when we talk about the how, the how of the, uh, the hypostatic union, we'll talk about um, a couple of views on that. So that's a, that's, that's a good, good anticipation. So, okay, so I did want to kind of review because this is going to be important to how we treat this subject today. So last week we talked about the difference or distinction between nature and person. And as a quick review, we said that um, basically, uh, and I'll write this for you guys, um, that nature, everybody see that? Yes? Does not equal the person. Okay, very important. Like if you get, 
you know, so when I start throwing a lot of words at you here in a minute, if you don't get anything else as we approach it, get this. It's going to be very important for our Christology. So um, we said that nature is basically is not a person but that, and this again, that's really the takeaway, uh, and it'll help our Christology in general, but that the person is the who or the subject, remember we said. So we said that this is the who. And you notice in our text it said Christ was a who, right? Just one, just something to connect. Um, and this is more of the what. Okay. Um, so the person is the subject, okay? Whereas the nature that acts, it's, it's the nature that acts as sort of a, I, I was thinking of it this way, it acts as sort of an internal motor or something like that. I think that... Um, uh, if you've read any of uh, some of the um, some of the continental reformers, um, they they'll put it that way. Uh, so it acts as sort of an internal motor that drives or inclines our actions toward a certain end. Okay, so that's what that's what the function of a nature is. Yet, and this is where you got to be careful. Yet, it is the person that acts in and through their nature, being the subject of that nature. So again, I just threw a lot of words out. Okay, but the point is. Persons do things, not natures. Okay? All right. So in other words, again, natures act. Natures do not act, but persons do. And this is why we said, you know, so naturally what we want to do is, um, is say that we locate the, um, the mind here. So things like will. And intellect, right? And this is where we locate the action of such things. Make sense? So, what happens if we locate the mind and the intellect over here? Just want us to. So, so if, we, if we locate, instead of positing mind and intellect and nature, if we locate it here, what would be some entailments? Well, yeah, well um, Christ, let's, let, let's say Christ. So, one person, two natures. Mm-hmm. Natures means two minds, two wills, two intellects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you're asking if we uh, have the mind pertaining to just the person and not the natures, then Jesus can only have either a divine or human mind, but not both, or maybe he has something in between. We can't. Uh, yeah, so. So what happens is, if you locate this here, what happens is you, you could run into several things depending on how you look at it. Yeah, so. There would be, if you reduce it down to the person, that mm-hmm. means that the mind of the human, uh, when we're thinking about Christ, in the mind of Christ is that we have one mind, and so that confuses the natures. 
Right. That, that's ultimately right. the problem. Yeah. So, yeah. so, 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 so that's one. You could get a demiurge. Yeah. Right? So that's one aspect. So you could say that the natures are persons. Like if you're going to locate the will and the intellect there. So you have Nestorianism. So you have like two persons. Or you combine them or mix them or confuse them. And then you have other heresies that arise like Apollinarianism and Eutychianism. Um, don't worry about the specific heresies, but the point is, is that that's why we predicate this to this instead of over here. So again, yeah. I think this is a silly distinction, I don't know, but when we say mind, are we thinking like, is that like passive mind, or is that like, is thinking an action, or is... You, you see what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm thinking of like immateriality, like of the soul. I'm not thinking of like, um, like a physical brain type of mind. Yeah. Uh, and I was going to, and that's helpful because when you think my, or at least these days with, you know, scientism being pretty prevalent, um, we, the, you know, everything's reduced to material things. Um, it makes you think automatically, at least it does me, uh, makes you think of two brains or something like that in, this, in that split. So, you have a question, Brad? Well, I'm, just, I'm just listening to all of it, and, uh, and, and I read some of it, you know, what you're saying is consistent with, with what I'm reading as far as the nature of the two. I just, just fleshing it out, uh, and, and I may get better at this as I'm reading a little bit more. Um, when we pray to have the mind of Christ, which mind are we asking for? Before we get into that, though, I think some definitions for what a mind and will is is helpful. Mm-hmm. What, what does the intellect do? What Even in us. Yeah, see, that, these are the questions that are really it knows things. Uh, It beholds things as they are. It, it's, the, it's the faculty of our soul that knows. <coughs> the will is simply the faculty of our soul that desires. That, that's basic kind of definitional phraseology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we're postulating that into the divine nature, is that God has a perfect, complete knowing of all things, and he has a perfect willing of his holy will what mm-hmm. he desires uh, uh, as Ephesians says he's good pleasure uh, and so that, that just kind of keeps some things in mind is that though we can speak of the same definitional uh, we can use the same definitions both in the divine and human that there are considerable differences but we're not going to get into those it's just important that we have kind of that understanding uh, as we Go for just what the will is, what the intellect is. And to answer that question about which mind, I, I think the, I think that's sort of um, the question. The question is assuming a uh, a a discontinuity in wills, um, and I don't think that that's I don't think that's what that's not what we're saying here. So when we say the mind of Christ, what we're talking about is something called. The communicado idiomatum, which just means that we can talk about the person of Christ as one. And we do this all over the Bible. Mm-hmm. So we're distinct, but yet we can still distinguish between natures and say that Christ has two minds. So, anyway, so moving forward, um, 
Anybody, any other questions? Okay, I'm going to try to, I'm try, gonna try to go. Like I said, I make the lessons shorter and they get longer, but that's okay. Um, so, um, again, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, uh, suggest here, though, I wanted to clarify again, like I did uh, last time, that this isn't, like, this isn't some sort of pagan dualism either. So we're not saying, like as Plato would say, um, that the nature is the whole person. And so that's where you get the belief with um, ancient Greek philosophy that you really want to escape this body because you want to be, for lack of a better way of saying it, a complete person. And the body's corrupt, material things are evil, you know, all that stuff. Um, that's, not, that's, not what we're, that's not what we're saying here. Uh, what we're saying is that showing how it is that the person can be the complete thing, yet is not by itself. Okay? All right. It requires a nature or a soul in order to operate substantially joined. And that word substantially is important because it's not like a hand and glove sort of puppeteering thing. Okay? It's a unity. It's a unity, and that's important to understand. So pertaining to Christ, what we really want to know, and this is where we're getting into the kind of the meat of our lesson, what we really want to know and we want to answer to is this. And I think I really think this is Fairly, sim- fairly simple conceptually. I'm going to try to make it that way anyway. Um, fairly simple conceptually. Um, but we want to know the how of the hypost- hypostatic union, right? Okay, so that's what we're going to try to do. Um, it's important to understand, and this is the first thing. It's important to understand that when, when the Son of God assumes a human nature, he doesn't sort of hijack another person you know, from the womb or something like that. So the best way, I think, to say this is that he assumes a human nature, not a human person, okay? This is why this distinction is important, okay? He assumes a human nature, not a person. No, instead, he assumes a created nature. Again, not a person. So how does the son the second person of the Trinity, assume this created nature. How does he do it? Or at least insofar as we could say from the text. That's a great question. I'm glad you all asked. Okay. <laughs> so um, I want to give you three views. Uh, three views, and um, I'm going to go down the list here. Um, I think the last view is the most correct or the correct one. So, but I'm going to talk about a couple of the other views and show... Um, why that? Why it's a little? Why 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 they're a little bit um, off? I guess that's the best way of saying it. Um, so there's the first view is the um, the divestative view or the canonic view. So I'm gonna erase this real quick. Everybody jot this down, right? Divestative, or you could just say canonic view. So you could the emptying view or something like that. So our text does say. Can you write it on the board? Yeah, I'm about. To, that's why I was erasing for it. Yeah. Um, so. Put the, closer to the mic, like this. Okay. I, well. Well, I, I've got I've got it right here in my pocket. Okay, so uh, I'm sorry. I'll talk. I'll talk louder. For never mind. Um, <laughs> so uh, 
the canonic view. That's just uh, that. That's uh, going to be the term that you probably hear when you're talking about this view. So canonic view. And our text does say, our text does say he emptied himself, does it not? So we want to affirm kenosis. We want to affirm the emptying. Okay, I certainly don't want to contradict the biblical text. It says this, but some take this view to mean that he emptied himself or laid aside some or certain aspects of his deity. Okay, like like an attribute or an attribute or two or all of his attributes. Okay, what I would say, what I would contend here is that if God is who he is necessarily, okay, if he exists as who he is necessarily, then it is wholly impossible for him to lay aside any aspect, any attribute or characteristic of his deity. Full stop. Okay. He is who he is, and if for any moment, let's say, he did lay aside an attribute or two, then it's really hard, I think, to logically avoid saying that God did change in some way or another. I think that's the logical end. I'm not saying everybody goes there. I'm not saying that people that would affirm some form of this go all the way to the end of that. No. What I'm saying is that it's hard to avoid the logical end of this, that God did change in some way or in another. And if God did change, then he is not God. I think that we've, I think that we can all agree with that. Um, So I think the problem, the assumption by this view of how Christ takes upon a human nature. So, so that's the problem is how it is that Christ takes, takes upon a na- his human nature in this view. The assumption is that I think by this view that in order to have a real carnation, the Son of God must sort of turn off some of his deity in order to make room for his humanity or something like that. That's at least how I see it articulated. Um, but this is incorrect and it has some severe negative implications. Um, the first thing is, number one, number one, I should write this. It assumes a, so big words, I'm sorry. What is panentheism? God is in all. Huh? God is in all. Yeah, so essentially he's a part or affected by the world in some way. Okay? Um, it assumes a panentheistic cosmology, which a negative entailment to that, again, is that God can be affected or changed by his creation. And so that kind of follows from what we said about God divesting himself of some attribute or something like that, of something of his deity. Um, and we can't have that. Uh, the, second, the second thing, the second uh, negative implication, assuming God is necessarily what he is, and by necessity in being, he upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, okay, and that in him we live, move, and have our being, Acts 17, 28, and that for of him and through him and to him are all things, Romans eleven thirty six. Assuming those things are true, any contingent event in God logically ends with a termination of all other things that exist. So if God changes, basically what I'm saying is 
you have no universe. That's not good at all. Um, so if he is not necessarily what he is, it's hard to imagine that if God somehow becoming incarnate, how the universe doesn't go out of existence immediately, even if he's turning off an attribute for a second. What does, it also, what it, what does that also assume? This is where we're thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm liking the looks, I hope. Um, uh, I shouldn't say no. Parts. God has parts. So he can piecemeal out his attributes and turn them on and off. Doesn't that assume that God is composed of something? Wouldn't you say? Yeah. So we violated simplicity there. Okay. Um, third thing. Third thing. We are doomed. <laughs> and what I mean by that, assuming we need a person, um, if all those things follow, assuming we need a person that is very God and very man in order to mediate the benefits of salvation to us, we need, we need, we need both. Full, we, need, we need the fullness of God and the fullness of, of humanity. Right, The fullness of God, the fullness of man. We need both of those. So any divestiture of deity in this respect results in someone that is not very God in some way or another. At least, at very least, some sort of lesser deity and, um, in my humble opinion, a lesser deity cannot save anybody at all. So, like I said, three... Yeah. Yeah. So there's not degrees of deity, and I was getting. I'm getting to that. Um. And isn't this usually held by your progressive liberal scholars? What's that now? Isn't this view held more by progressive and liberal scholars? Yeah. It's not really within you know. In reform circles, not as com- no, yes, not, not not as common. No, no, no. But I'm I'm bringing it up because it's what's out there. Yeah, it's what's out there, and um, we can we are still susceptible uh, in this room to thinking of some kind of functional divestiture. We do, it doesn't mean we affirm all this or that we're thinking full on you know canonicism, but we can fall into the trap of like where we functionally think of Christ as having to. Again, the deity having to go be put aside in order for him to be truly man. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, this is more prevalent. And go ahead. If I could put it in a way that maybe, maybe we feel, maybe sometimes we feel that Jesus doesn't quite get us because he is so completely other in his divinity, mm. that it's very tempting for us to have a view such as this to where he's not as divine, so he comes a little bit closer. But that's actually a savior. That's, yeah. that's the idea. Yeah. That's, that's the liberal view that we don't want. Yeah. They want him to become like us in more ways. And sometimes they just outright reject his divinity. But right, right. So, so there's levels. I mean, like some people, some will say, well, he retains this or that. And, you know, anyway. Um, I think the aspect of that view in some of the broader evangelicalism, like I, I saw someone on Facebook who's a very 
broadly evangelical pastor talked this week about uh, God's love for us. He cited a passage in Isaiah where it says that Israel's name is engraved on God's hands. And he said, well, God loves us so much that it hurts him. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he didn't take time to to my comments about Passability yeah. and immutability. And yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, not <laughs> well, well, hopefully we can all still be friends, even so. But, um, but uh, I'm kind of running out of time because I do want to again leave some room for some more questions. Um, but so the second view is the augmentative view. Um, the augmentative view uh, number two, augmentative. Okay, and I'll go ahead and say with this view. It's not wrong per se. I, just, I think there's a better way to articulate it, though. Okay, so I want to be careful and not say that. So with the first view, heterodox, for sure. Um, this view, I wouldn't say heterodox. Um, I would say I think that there's a better way to say it. But just going quickly over it, and there's, I think, much less to say about this one. But the, the position would hold that the Son of God added a human nature to himself when he assumed it. And, I, and that's, that arose in... Mid-19th century, I think, something like that, where that became common language. Um, that God added a human nature when he assumed it. I would just simply say that while, again, I don't think this view is heterodox, uh, it can become dangerous to say that God added something to himself, even a human nature. Um, and the reason why I say that is since saying so does or would, without, if you're not qualifying, so you have to be careful, if you don't qualify that further, it would imply need or imperfection in God. Okay? So the question would go, well, how can a perfect being add something to himself? Go ahead. Is that kind of how I normally say true God, true man, instead of fully God, fully man? That's, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so, so um, uh, very God and very man. What did you say? Truly God and truly man? Uh, that's better. So saying fully God and fully man isn't wrong. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's just, I think, better ways to say it. We don't want to give the impression that, that, that God adds something to himself. That's all. Um, so, so, you know, so uh, I think Randy asked this question at some point where he said, uh, it made me think of this question about God being complete prior to the incarnation or incomplete or something like that. Um, we would deny um, that he stands in need, even when talking about the second person of the Trinity, of a human nature to be complete. Okay, so so that's what um, you know that that kind of, this view kind of speaks to, to I think what what he was asking in that. Um, so what we want to say, or what we want to do, is find a way to say that God does not stand in need of anything whatsoever, yet maintain the incarnation. Okay, so last last view, last last one. This is called, I don't know if it was always called this, somebody could correct me, um, uh, but it's, 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 it's not new, um, but it's, I would call it the terminative view. Um, so I can go ahead and write here, term, terminative. Um, and again, I think this one's pretty simple as well. Um, it, require, it does require a little more conceptual thinking, I think. Um, and the reason why I say that is sometimes I think when we think of Christ, or at least I do, I think of uh, him as like, um, like two natures like stuck into 
a body or something like that. And I, and I know, you know, we all know that's not how it works, but I think this helps with kind of dispelling that, um, that kind of thought process. So here we're just simply saying that when the Son of God assumes a human nature by doing so, and this part's important, he supplies to that human nature its personhood. Okay? By assumption of a human nature, not person, remember. By assumption of the human nature, he supplies that nature its personhood. Okay? So I'll say it another way. The divine person of the Son gives personhood to the human nature he assumes. Clear as mud? Mm-hmm. Where you said Christ had to add or take on human nature in order to understand human frailty. Mm-hmm. So, and I lost my train of thought on what you were just saying, but that's how I was trying to. Oh, so if God was complete before the incarnation, but the human nature was not added. So then we're saying he had human nature before incarnation. No. So then how does he get that human nature if it's not added to him? He, cre- he creates a rational soul and assumes it, just like he would create your soul. This is where we got deep into the weeds of creationism <laughs> and how the origin of the soul occurs. Um, Do you want to say something? Son of God, the soul, and he just took on flesh. Um, Does that make sense? Can I, let me do an illustration because yeah. I'm a dumb dumb and I need help when thinking about these things. What we don't want to do is that when we say that he adds, that he's taking, right? In, in that sense, that he's adding something to himself. Yeah. I think something better, especially as we think about, remember when God acts, when I slam my hand down on the table, uh, I have a new relationship to this table that I did not previously have. You know, I can feel the neurons coming back. Is that there's a rebounding effect to what I did by adding my hand to the table. But with God, it's conceptually, it's how we think about this, is that there is no reverberating right, is that God simply gives, he does not take. That's the idea that we're trying to affirm. And by giving of himself, because he is actus purus, he is full potentiality, uh, full actuality of being, oh, not potentiality, full actuality of being, he gives forth a new nature, and it's simply him giving forth a new nature, uh, that new creating nature. Not that he's adding it to himself. Right. It's can we say God added uh, a human nature? Yes. That, that's why I think uh, you qualify that correctly about the augmentative view. But more importantly, it's about just those finer details and just making sure when we speak about Christology and the assumption is that we're not saying anything beyond what we're actually saying in that sense. By saying that he adds a nature. We just want to say that there is no reverberating effect upon God because God cannot change. His imperfect or his perfections cannot be perfected upon by the assuming of the human nature. Right. That, that's simply it. Does, does yeah. that help? Yeah. So when he gives forth, when he 
creates the, the human nature. He has no reverberating effect upon himself, but he simply gives forth the new creation. Just as in all of creation, creation does not change God, but even in the unique uh, creating, the unique assumption of the Son is that he's giving forth that particular human substantial form, the, the body and soul. That's the idea. Right. Sorry, no, no, no. Buried, buried deep within uh, this view, um, uh, the, the concept is simple enough, but the details aren't. Um, and so that's why I was, I was buried deep in this view is exactly what that is trying to articulate, is that it's called terminative because the divine son terminates not like again not like destroys the human nature or human humanity or something like that but meaning that he brings to completion the human nature that he assumes okay he brings it to completion he brings it to completion it does nothing to him okay right yeah that's, that's the idea we yeah. don't want to confirm change yeah. God's yeah. And that helps more so. This determinative language helps more so than the augmentative. Yeah, that's that that's the whole point. That's why I think it's that's it's the discussion. Yeah, that's that's but it's better to talk about that way. Yeah. To that, um, there is a difference between absolute necessity and theological necessity. Yes. And, and what you're like, it is theologically necessary, okay? And it's theologically necessary that he remain mm-hmm. our incarnate glorified Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, but could he have saved us another way? Well, God is omnipotent. Of course he could have. But... but yeah, but that's, that's the difference. The, the old language to that is fittingness. Yeah. Why, why did Jesus come as a Jewish man? In yeah, the right. Century so, 17th century. Yeah. And yeah. He died by the guillotine instead. That's the Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. This is like very interesting that this is the topic because the sermon today is a lot to do with this because it's Jesus' coming and incarnation, but it's not his birth. It's like the after part where he gets yeah, circumcised. Part where he has to like. Be an actual being, yeah. Yeah. You're Luke 2, right? What's that? You're Luke 2, Luke 2, 21, 40. Him in the temple, is that right? Yeah. 
Yeah, so like a lot of the sermon today is going to deal with sort of this kind of thing. And it's not, um, yeah, I think what Lana said is really helpful. Like, God gave us Jesus to show us, like, his saving grace, basically. Like, he didn't need to show himself his own saving grace. Like, he didn't need to show himself mm-hmm. any of this. He didn't need to show himself or give himself, like, help. Like somehow to understand anything, but he definitely did have to give us that in like a real person. Um, yeah. And so, but then the thing is, while you're talking about this and while you're listening to the sermon today, realize how much of a mystery and how oh yeah, well. this really is. And so, if you're one of these people like me who's confused by this <laughs> and finds this to be very much a lot to take in, just Know that that's kind of the whole point. Yeah, that's why. That's yeah. That's the whole. That's good. So uh, mission accomplished. Um, <laughs> so I mean, just as a side note, and I'll, I'll end with this. Do you see though, like coming from this, do you see why, like, how that relates to the virgin birth, for example? So to to what Dirk was talking about, why you have to have a virgin birth? Okay, why Christ now is the second Adam? Because you have divinity lifting man essentially back into his innocent state. That does not mean that Jesus isn't affected by the results of the fall of human, other human beings. I mean, he got sick. He, he had to sleep. He had to eat food. Things like that. But he is the second Adam for this reason. That's why this is so important. And that's why, as we'll talk about later, we have, now we have a mediator who can assume all the offices predicated of Christ. And in this view, we can also say, at the same time, Christ is very man and very God, yet divinely unchanged. Mysterious and remarkable at the same time. Uh, that's really all I have. I don't think we have any time for questions. <laughs> can I pray start real quick? All right, let's pray. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this rich study. Thank you for Richard and his preparation. And thank you as we even begin, as we're going to continue thinking about Christ and his coming, uh, his uh, unique uh, giving of himself. Well, we thank you for Richard's study, and we uh, ask that you would please bless uh, both Pastor Wynn and Dirk now as they give us the word. Uh, Father, uh, you are so good to us. Continue to guide us, correct us. Um, though we peer into the mysteries and we go about it somewhat darkly, Lord, you, through your Spirit, give us the illumination so that we can behold your glory. And in beholding your glory, Father, we have great great joy. So, Father, help us behold your glory in this hour to come. Amen. Amen.